Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Chinjirai Kumanika, and this is Intercepted. It's the anti, everything that you believe you stand for. Cancer that a man stores in his hands for laying them on parishioners, wishing for some malignants. I'm really just saying what I'm writing is sickening, what I'm writing is vision, what I'm writing is healing, what I'm writing is flashes of lightning across the ceiling, flames on the floor flickering, licking your feet to move you, fool you into believing that when you move it's the true you, voodoo dance from dude whose hands expand reality, puppeteering, but from what you're hearing, you do it naturally, and actually, I'm the blame for it all, I'm the reason even you're breathing. If you that was Talking to Ghosts by my man A.D. Carson and myself. Welcome to part two of our two-part interview with iconic geographer, organizer, and legendary prison abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Ruthie is professor of geography and director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the CUNY Graduate Center. She's co-founder of several abolitionist organizations, including Critical Resistance, and she's author of the prize-winning book Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. She's also finishing up a couple of new books, including Change Everything, Racial Capitalism, and The Case for Abolition, forthcoming from Haymarket. This is part two of our conversation with Ruthie. If you missed part one, I would strongly encourage you to go check that out and then return to this episode. As listeners will recall, in part one, Ruthie dissects and debunks the claim that systems of organized violence produce public safety. She traces the ideological nature of the concept of crime and how prisons and policing have expanded and absorbed the function of other institutions of social welfare. The point Ruthie makes about police taking over work in many areas of life, such as school counseling, mental health, and social work, reminds me of a point that Professor Nicole Siegel makes in her book, Violence Work. Siegel says that when you take away the role that the police have stolen from other areas and look at what's left it quickly becomes clear that the police don't really have a specific job of their own, at least not one that improves the lives of working-class people. On the question of whether police are effective at preventing harm, I'm still reeling from a much better question that Ruthie asks, which is this. Under what kinds of social relations and relationships are people more likely to do harm to each other? But even under our current arrangement, Other countries have proven that other kinds of workers are better than heavily armed police at dealing with those who may intend to hurt people. Other kinds of workers can march alongside parades and assist people in health emergencies. 
other kinds of workers are better equipped to investigate sexual assault and domestic violence and support survivors. Siegel says the only real job the police have and the real reason they're hired is to perform violence work. The graphic displays of violence that we're seeing on our television screens and in our streets are not a departure from their work. Police are hired to produce spectacular dominance that forces us to submit to an unequal status quo. Of course, the violence that police enact is only the surface of their misconduct and toxic effect on the lives of those who wind up in their hands. But I think the language of violence can help us to understand why police are given so much latitude in this area. Over the past several weeks, one thing that has made the concept of prison abolition more accessible to the mainstream is the torrent of images of police blocking in protesters with their shields and tear gassing, choking, and running over people. But against this massive visible archive of state violence is the almost insurmountable challenge of achieving any accountability. In her reflections on this, Ruthie suggests that the physical repression we see on camera is upheld by a different, less obvious sight of police power. How it is police in the United States can do what they do with impunity. Now, we know that police brutality and the impunity police have enjoyed in so many instances for so long, especially, although not exclusively, when it comes to harming and killing Black people, goes back a long time. But here's the part where we could focus on today in our discussion that I think our audience ought to understand. And that is that police combine their warfare against vulnerable communities with lawfare that covers them when the blue thread or code of silence that stitches warfare and lawfare together comes undone. What am I talking about? Since 1989, police have been able under a Supreme Court ruling called Graham versus Connor to say, I killed this person because I feared for my life. That is the standard, which is very low, that the police use to walk. And they walk and they walk and they walk. The standard is they say that they were afraid. And the use of fear, when you think about the fact that the people who claim to have been afraid are the ones who are armed and able to kill people and do, gives us some insight into the way that violence in the United States tends to justify and explain everything, which is to say that the political culture of America, of the United States, is one that is based on the presumption of a perpetual enemy who must always be fought, but who can never be vanquished. And this is what the police use. Graham versus Connor is a bulwark for the police when their blue line and code of silence doesn't protect them when the warfare that they commit 
becomes exposed as it has been now with the George Floyd killing, with the Breonna Taylor killing, and with so many other killings. And the fact that police in the United States kill three people a day every day, which is to say every eight hours, or if we think of it another way, all in a day's work, then we can understand why the call to abolish police is so fundamental to the call to restore or to create in our society systems and structures that enhance life as precious rather than only punish after something terrible has been done. Listening to Ruthie offer these insights, I became curious about what in her own life experience informed her analysis. Like many people who came to the abolitionist movement that launched in the 90s, which was a reiteration of an earlier movement, or I should say an iteration of earlier movements of prison abolition, were tired not only of the kinds of harms that we knew our communities experienced, but we had firsthand suffered premature death of beloveds at the hands of people who shouldn't have killed them. As a journalist, I've been taught to steer into difficult questions, like these questions of trauma and loss. But I learned quickly that in my effort to get more specificity, I had played into a common trope. You want to know the story of the death in my family? Okay. All right, I'm going to say all of this, and when you edit it, leave this part in, please. It always pisses me off that I have to authorize myself to speak about crime by telling people that my beloved cousin, who was close enough to me that he was more like a brother than a cousin, was shot down in cold blood when he was 23 years old. But I tell this story so that people will open their ears and listen to me. My cousin was a member of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. He was the minister of, I think, education for the Los Angeles chapter. And he and Bunchy Carter were mown down by bullets in a fight in Campbell Hall on the UCLA campus in January of 1969. What he and Bunchy and other people had been fighting for that day and the reason they died was they were students as well as Panthers. And what they were trying to do was persuade other students that the kind of curriculum the Black Studies Department at UCLA should pursue is a curriculum that would be anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and anti-war. For the reasons that they, those two, and the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense became at the top of J. Edgar Hoover's targets for destruction was that they would work with white people and other people who were not Black, that they were anti-racist, anti-capitalist and anti-war, that they were committed to education, breakfast programs, and other things that would realize, as the 
Panthers used to say, survival pending revolution. That's why they died. And the fight in which they died was one that was instigated by the FBI under COINTELPRO in conjunction with LAPD and other counterinsurgency forces. Some people might say, well, gosh, Ruthie, why wouldn't you want the people who killed your cousin to be locked up? The answer is that wouldn't bring my cousin back. If they were locked up forever, that would mean that their families would suffer as my family has suffered. And it wouldn't solve the problems that the Black Panther Party, that other parties striving for liberation were trying to realize in the world. All of that made me an abolitionist. Other abolitionists can tell you their stories. We all came together, not because we thought the people in prison were innocent, but because we knew that prison wasn't solving the problems that we in our communities were struggling to resolve. All of them could see how the vulnerability, everyday vulnerability, for modestly educated people in the prime of their life could not be addressed in a meaningful way as long as the forces of organized violence and prison expansion took the place of solving the problems that people actually experienced. I can't count the number of times that I've used the word freedom in protests here in Philadelphia, in places like Ferguson, Missouri, New York, and elsewhere. Back up, back up, we want freedom. It's a cry we use to back down the advance of police and the carceral state. But in the introduction to Ruthie's 2007 book, Golden Gulag, she said something that is both disturbing and clarifying. And I'm going to quote this. The practice of putting people in cages for all or part of their lives is a central feature in the development of secular states participatory democracy, individual rights, and contemporary notions of freedom. Concepts of freedom are constantly struggled over, circulated the planet over the last 500 years, and didn't begin, you know, with the expansion of European colonialism and imperialism. But certainly... These concepts, concepts of freedom, central to the struggle of how we make life. So the American project has the word freedom written large across every document, although liberty kind of more strongly than freedom in some places. And for some people, perhaps people for whom a reformist reform is adequate, freedom to participate in all of these institutions and agencies of opportunity and control is adequate. For others of us, that freedom isn't enough. That freedom actually doesn't make possible the flourishing of life as it should be, in part because it rests on an unspoken or not spoken enough foundation of colonialism, as well as an unspoken problem of the redress 
for slavery and displacement and dislocation that has characterized so much of the last 500 years. That said, what we're trying to do in thinking with so many people in so many places about abolition is how can it be possible to realize a new way of being given what it is we already know how to do? We can look back through history or around the world now and see, for example, as Du Bois taught us in Black Reconstruction in America, that post-Civil War communities in the South develop all kinds of institutions for well-being and opportunity and safety that did not rely on organized violence, but rather were opening up to the possibility of greater and greater freedom through the institution of such things as public education and so on. We know from talking with and working with colleagues and comrades who are fighting against land grabbing, whether it's from black farmers in Mississippi or landless peasants in Brazil or Mozambique, that given the fact that 70% of all the food that's consumed on this planet is still produced by small producers, that we have already there the opportunity to free ourselves from the deprivation and degradation that agribusiness produces. So this is another way of thinking about freedom. So these are, you know, some of the large ways that abolitionists are trying to think, but think concretely about what it is people already do or already know how to do or already should be able to do if they only felt empowered, if you will, to do it. While abolitionists recognize the oppressive contradiction built into American notions of freedom that make it so difficult to gain accountability from the police, they go beyond reformers who simply want to limit the project of justice to convictions. Across the country, we've seen the emergence of campaigns to dismantle police departments and defund the police. I wanted to get Ruthie's perspective on the mainstreaming of these demands. No abolitionist who's a true abolitionist wants to save money. What we want is for the money to be spent to enhance and support human life so that it can flourish in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. We're not about cost savings. Although every so often abolitionists will line up with people who are about cost savings and sometimes will travel in the same direction for a few minutes and then generally part company. What therefore we're talking about is divest from police, prisons, courts, and so forth, and put those money and human resources into schools, social work, Uh, Green New Deal or Red Green New Deal economic activity, things that communities, municipalities, states can do. As we saw five or six weeks ago, 
the Congress of the United States, in connection with the administration of the United States, 45's administration, printed, which is to say created out of thin air, something on the order of a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. Most people who are listening to this have no idea how many zeros to write down to indicate a trillion dollars as a written number. So much money. Where is that money going? If that money were loaded into helicopters and those helicopters zoomed over the United States and the money were thrown out the windows of the helicopters and it floated to the ground, people picked it up. Most people would spend what they picked up and that would make the economy hum. That's not what's happening with that trillion dollars. Most of it's going into large corporations and firms or to investment banks who will then decide the allocation. And some of it will dribble down eventually into the pockets and the hands of people who will spend it. But it's actually the spending of the money that will revive economic activity that is so harmed by covid and all of the effects that COVID and high unemployment are wreaking in the country. It could be that for some abolitionists, calling for this massive divestment revestment will be the frontline demand, whereas for some people who are going in the same direction as abolitionists, the call will be, for those four cops in Minneapolis to feel, to experience the full brunt of the laws that currently exists. Insofar as at the moment we're going in the same direction, those two things can be called for at the same time. However, those four cops experiencing the full brunt of the law will not in and of itself change the larger structural issue that abolitionists are constantly trying to help people see, imagine, and shift. Ruthie is discussing an issue that's painful for us to talk about right now, but crucial for us to confront. If our movement is really about transforming systems of criminal punishment into something else, can we really rely on these organized systems of violence to get justice for our loved ones that have been killed by the police? I mean, do you have thoughts about... about how to negotiate that in movements where there seem to be these conflicting ideas around punitiveness? One way to talk about it is for people to think through, which is to say talk through and feel, explore, and experience in interactions with other people. What we want to get out of punishment as against what we want the world to be like. So you'll recall that when I was talking to you in my irritation about the personal experience I had with losing a loved one, I said that what I as well as others I've worked with closely over the years, realized was that the thirst to punish someone who hurt you is a real feeling. 
But the society that we want to bring into being won't come into being through a better system of punishment. Rather, it's punishment that leads people to the conclusion in the first instance that the way you deal with a problem is by killing it. In other words, the people who killed my cousin were laying the ultimate punishment on him, weren't they? So I'm not saying they shouldn't be accountable, responsible, make some kind of restitution to my then bereaved aunt and uncle and cousins and the community that my cousin was part of. Of course those things should happen in the way that will make the society we want to live in then and subsequently, rather than punish and then pretend that punishment fixes things. Punish, then pretend that punishment fixes things. So that is one aspect of the problem that we try to address and that many people who, for example, have turned away from carceral feminism in the effort to reduce and try to eliminate instances of violence against women and domestic violence, they are trying to figure out how to achieve the society we want rather than to punish more swiftly and surely the people who punish people for being alive. The threat of violence and actual expression of violence, interpersonal, only produces more of itself. This is the knot we're trying to untangle, knowing how difficult it is to let go of the feeling, which is real. I'm not saying it's not real. To let go of the feeling that you want to hurt somebody who hurt you. We can't make a life that way. Not for your 11-month-old daughter. Not for all my little nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews and all the children on the earth. There are billions more people on this planet than there were when I was born. Billions. Billions. What can we do together as humans living well on the planet instead of living poorly and destroying the planet? Those are the questions we ask ourselves. Now, some number of people have gathered periodically over the last 20 or 25 years who have insisted there is a, quote, bipartisan, close quote, way to reform the excesses of the criminal system in the United States. In my view, bipartisan criminal justice reform is nonsense. It's nonsense for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it's nonsense because it purports to be able to identify the people who should not be punished and set aside all those who should 
be punished, to label those who should be punished, the people, quote, we are afraid of, close quote, those are Newt Gingrich's words, and leave them aside in perpetual punishment, while a few people, who we might call the low-hanging fruit, get some kind of relief, whether that relief is decriminalization or something like house arrest or incarceration, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, the people who are participating in these bipartisan reforms are very busily and somewhat effectively, as Kay Whitlock has shown in her fantastic writing, trying to relieve white-collar business type wrongdoing of any kind of accountability in a court of law. Ruthie and I discussed the sophisticated but deceptive and harmful way that the myth of a bipartisan coalition allows conservatives and libertarians to exploit the experience of the most vulnerable as a way to reduce accountability for the most powerful. Many of the kinds of rules or constraints that they are trying to bust down. And some of the they in this instance are people like from Olin Foundation or the Koch brothers or the Manhattan Institute, you know, the right wing think tanks. What they are trying to bust down is anything that gets between them and their ability to extract value from labor and land. And furthermore, what they're trying to get around is being responsible for any bad effects of their business decisions and practices if it can't be proved that they engaged in these business practices knowing and intending to harm people. Therefore, If they do some kind of work, let's say in a city called Flint, that poisons the water that the people of Flint will drink, the capitalist firm, the establishment or establishments responsible for poisoning the water that humans rely on can't be held responsible if they didn't intend to poison the water, knowing that humans would die. Oh, wow. Do you understand what I'm saying? The way in which this links to the kind of what you called lawfare that has emerged to protect police officers. Thank you. You made my day. And that does it for this week's show. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. For this program, our executive producer is Jeremy Scahill. Our lead producer is Jack Disidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription is done by Lucy Croning. I'm Chinjirai Kumanika. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. 
Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.